what I always try to do is I try to prove myself wrong in advance by questioning everything because nobody wants to say something and be proven wrong. That's the way that I've tried to approach things in sport is I'm not interested in being right per se. I'm interested in winning and winning comes from having the most accurate model of reality because the person with the most accurate model of reality wins. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Kier Wenham-Flat is a sport consultant, coach educator, and writer with over a decade of experience working in elite sport. His coaching experience includes a number of NCAA Division I football teams and professional rugby organizations in England, Australia, Japan, and Argentina, who he notably helped to a fourth-place finish at the 2015 Rugby World Cup. He also provides leading high-performance education at www.strengthcoachnetwork.com. In this episode, Kieran and I discuss how to model performance in elite sport and what it takes to successfully implement organizational change and shifting into a new career. If you find today's podcast to be valuable, go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up for my high-performance newsletter. In this newsletter, I provide you valuable resources and information to help you pursue audacious goals, thrive in uncertainty, and live a healthy and fulfilled life. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Here, glad to have you on today. Dr. Corum, a pleasure. <laughs> you know, Kira, somebody that has risen the ranks Started at the bottom, worked your way up to a very high level in sport. You've gotten an opportunity to compete on the highest stage in the world, in the World Cup. You've been on some great teams. You've been on some not-so-great teams. It seems to me that failure abounds significantly more in sports than success. Mm -hmm. So what is it that separates a great team versus an average or poor team? I would say... What I've noticed when I've been a part of more successful organizations is that there's a real alignment top to bottom of what it is that the organization is trying to achieve. And when I went to China, it was very brief, but when I went to China, it was to the extent where it was written on the walls, literally like propaganda slogans about what it was they were going to do and what was expected. And it was explicitly clear and obvious you are here to win a gold medal and everything we are going to do is in pursuit of winning a gold medal and i'll give you another example from you mentioned the world cup campaign in argentina we made every decision as a staff of is this going to help us win the world cup in 2019 not 2015 so we were actually planning long term and we understood that the 2015 campaign was just to gain the momentum, learn the lessons, and to get access to resources to secure a World Cup final berth and ultimately win the World Cup in 2019, which did not happen. But the president of the union talked about it. The vice president of the International Rugby Board, who's Argentinian, basically he's the, the power behind the power in Argentinian rugby. He made it very, very clear what the objective was and what the necessary steps we had to take which was the addition of Argentina to the Southern Hemisphere Championship, the creation of regional performance centers, and the addition of the Argentinian team to Super Rugby. 
all of which he did. And everyone knew about it and there was no ambiguity. And if you were on the outside or the, the receiving end of that in a bad way, it was considered to be cutthroat. If you were on the inside, it was considered extremely specific and focused and easy to follow. And when you contrast that to less successful organizations, there is either ambiguity or active conflict between different stakeholders in the organization about what it is they want to achieve. So the kind of business thing of if your product is for everyone, your product is for no one. I think it's the same is true in sport. If you're trying to be all things to all men or all people, you're typically going to be that like millimeter of progress in a million different directions. And there's no such thing as a free lunch. So if you make the statement, we are going to win championships, there's going to be people that get left behind and they're going to be upset. Because when you set goals, you by default create hierarchies. And when you create hierarchies, you create winners and losers. And that is the, the price that is paid in order to try and achieve those goals. Yes. If and when it gets to the time that, you know, you've said, well, this is what we want to achieve. You begin on that road and you come up against a roadblock. You go, don't want to upset that person. Maybe let's, you know, pull back a little bit. That is when you just kind of get like that middling mediocrity. It's more comfortable in the short term, but in the long term, you've actually shot yourself in the foot. So this is really interesting to me because sometimes those actions can be considered cold. Yes. How many organizations you have you seen that are consistent winners mm -hmm. where people actually enjoy showing up to work and they don't feel like their head's always on a chopping block? There's a balancing act to it. A lot of people use the phrase, higher, slow, fire, fast. So if you as a member of a team can be fired at the drop of a hat for arbitrary reasons, someone has made an error in your hiring. Mm. So successful teams, I would say, are not characterized by, you know, your head's on the block, but there is the understanding that there's an expectation of what it is your job is to do. You should have an agreed set of metrics or criteria that you're going to be evaluated on. And when you do a good job and you exceed those targets, you're given a reward commensurate with that. And when you do bad, then there may be consequences to that. And it's that alignment of when it's good for you, it's good for me. When it's bad for you, it's bad for me. Mm -hmm. And actually broken systems, we've, we've talked a lot just in our day-to-day -day conversations. A broken system is, is when we win, I, I get a pat on the back and no, no real financial reward or any, any reward whatsoever different. But when we lose, I'll get fired. So when it's good for you, nothing for me. When it's bad for you, it's bad for me. <laughs> it's kind of like asymmetrical. What I think should happen in high-performance sport is you can take away the floor, and that is just every high-level sports organization. You can take away the floor, but in order to do that, you must also take away the ceiling. Right. Because in, in some ways, like we know that in high-performance sport, job security is not something that comes with the territory. If you win, yeah, but it's still fleeting. You could win the championship and two years later, you're gone. <laughs> And that's something I've struggled with. And I know that there's a lot of people, you and I have recently left sport in a formal sense, 
And one of the things that bothered me is that like you could create something really, really good. You leave and within 12 to 18 months, it's all undone. Nobody remembers. Wait. Yeah. (laughs) And that's part of the, that's part of sport in general is that like you win the championship, but in reality, like you look back five or six years, most people can't remember who won it. Yeah. So your, your reward has to be internal. But there is something about, for me, but there is something for an enduring sense of, uh, I know you had a look on your face, like for an enduring sense of like, I did something well. It can't always, the, the rings validate to the rest of the world what you did, but there has to be something internal so that you can keep going to work day to day. And the, the reason I pulled that face is because for three seasons in the rugby championship in Argentina, we went 0-17. And I was having the ride of my life. I loved it. Uh, <laughs> it hurts temporarily and it's embarrassing to get your pants pulled down on, you know, in front of millions of people on TV, you know, 17 games in a row. But there was never any doubt in our minds as a staff, we're getting closer because the margin got smaller, 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 smaller. And you take stock from that and you take enthusiasm. And I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. I just think. If you are going to put yourself in an environment where you understand that is that high risk, the reward has to match because in the real world, high risk equals high reward. Yes. But in sport, high risk, no reward. (laughs) Yes. Unless you're getting paid a whole lot of money. It's really, to me, if I evaluate the risk of it, it's not worth it. Unless if you have a family, if you have other people to take care of. Yeah, Yeah. So it depends. But it really does lead to a, uh, it can lead to a toxic life and resentment within your family. You're constantly uprooting your kids. If you're single and you don't mind that and you're willing to take that type of risk and you're smart with your finances, you know, go see the world because you're going to go see it. You're going to go to, you know, I lived in uh, 10 places in 15 years or 16 years some of which I never would have said, oh, I'm going to go live in Fort Valley, Georgia, or Stockton, California, or yeah. Williamsburg, Virginia. You know, those are yeah. just not like places I like start on the map. Not on the list. <laughs> no. Each place taught me something very valuable, though. You know, one of the things, Kier, that you are an absolute master at is problem solving. And I don't know if it's the mental model that you use. I think part of it is that your framework and how you view the world but when you're faced with a complex problem, like what, how do you sit back to begin to assess it so that you can get to the result that you want? I'll say this. If I was a master, I wouldn't have so many problems. However, <laughs> I don't know. You see, it, it's true. Like you and I have had conversations where when you and my boss, it's like, hey, you need to pay attention to the detail more. And you're right. <laughs> but the thing is, it's like, I agree. The detail is very, very important in the day-to-day running of a department and a lack of attention to detail can be perceived as a lack of professionalism. I think if I'm really honest with myself, that is a price that I'm willing to pay to, to be able to see the big picture and to see the whole board and try and move the pieces around the board. And that was why when we worked at William & Mary, it was really good to have Scott to cover me in that regard. I yes. thought as, as a staff, us three, really complemented each other quite well because we all had our strengths. And I, you know, I would agree with you that what I lacked in detail, I was 
better at being able to see the kind of the moving pieces. And we've never talked about this before, but I, when I was growing up, I used to inhale like encyclopedias and like looking like there was a, a series of books called how things work. And I would like look at the systems and be like, Oh, that's very interesting. And I've always kind of had like a, a degree of curiosity and be like, Oh, I wonder why that is. And what I always try to do is I try to prove myself wrong in advance by questioning everything because nobody wants to say something and be proven wrong. <laughs> and I've just, I guess I've just been lucky to surround myself either by good fortune or I gravitate towards individuals where not that it's ever gone perfect, but I've always surrounded myself with individuals who are like, oh, why do you, why do you think that? Why uh, justify your position? And then you try and shoot holes in each other's ideas. And when you're in confrontational situations in business or sport or whatever, you can kind of like get your defense up and be like, oh, he's attacking me. But really, in reality, you're attacking the idea. Yes. And it, it comes with time and it comes with being comfortable in those situations that you can detach. And that's, that's the way that I've tried to approach things in sport is I'm not interested in being right per se. I'm interested in winning. And winning comes from having the most accurate model of reality because the person with the most accurate model of reality wins. That's so true. You know, because you have this narrative going on in your brain of what you want to happen mm -hmm. or how things should be. Yeah. And then there's how it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, with, and without going into too much detail on some previous experiences, you and I have walked through some of the how things should be yeah. and how things really are. And it takes, you know, something I've really been doing a lot. I, I really enjoy listening to uh, Shane Parrish. And he, he talks to some really interesting VCs and people that are trying to get that crystal ball and look into the future. Mm -hmm. And then kind of they go into the future and then they can travel back. And that takes uh, a self-discipline to be able to sit there and start moving these things around in your head. Mm. If this, then that, then this. What's the second order effect of X, Y, and Z? You know, in sport, I think something that a fundamental problem is, is that a lot of coaches have never been brought up to question the situation or the scenario that they're in. It's a mentor-apprenticeship approach. It's, I worked at this place, we were successful, and so that's what I'm going to do because I watched this person do it that way, and that's how it's going to be done. And then what I've seen firsthand is, and I'm probably sure you can attest to this, is when somebody now goes from a situation where they watched it happen a certain way and there was good re results, and now they're in the driver's seat, mm -hmm. they don't know how to put the pieces together. And then they're that's just trying to I've never understood the secrecy in strength and conditioning for that very reason. I can go and walk through Gordon Ramsay's kitchen tomorrow and I'm not going to open a Michelin starred restaurant. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. He has a skill set like Nick Saban. Yeah. He's got all these things in his head that unless you're there for a very, very long time. Yeah. And you unpack all the reasons behind what he's doing and yeah. he would actually mentor you just going into the organization and copying his structure and his org chart and his Nick Saban manual and the fourth quarter mm -hmm. program and all this. It's not going to work. 20 and 0 against his assistants. Right. <laughs> Some of them have equal talent. Yeah. 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 
And so how do you create the most accurate model of the world? Failure. <laughs> Dude, my first year in Japan, flavor of the month. Oh my God, Argentina are so fit. They're so fast. They dominated Ireland. They were the second best team in the world. And we put, we put 17 points on them in 13 minutes, which is big in rugby. If, I mean, it, it got close, but if they had beaten us, it would have been the biggest margin ever overturned in World Cup history. And we put 40 points on them. And everyone was like, there were a lot of factors that went into that. We were lucky, they were unlucky, but we were, we were well prepared. And that was what got me hired to go to Japan because I was like flavor of the month. And then, you know, we got to the semifinal of the World Cup. It works, right? So I go over to Japan. They're like, give us the World Cup package. And I'm like, well, okay. You know, I'd use some things uh, unorthodox, a little bit different, which you would have seen in football. You know, we did some stuff that was different. And I had the worst year of my career to date in terms of injuries. The Japanese players hated it because it didn't fit with their culture. I had members of the coaching staff actively undermining me. I had some seriously influential people, not just within the club, within world rugby, disagreeing with me, calling me out in meetings and stuff like that. <laughs> and I remember, I think it was Mark McLaughlin put up a quote by Richard Feynman, which is when your theory conflicts with reality, change the theory. <laughs> mm. So guess what? It may have worked for Argentina. It doesn't work now. So what I thought worked, there were clearly mistakes within my system and how I was working and interacting with other members of the staff that if I wanted, I want to succeed more than I want to be right. And you obviously learn a ton more from failure than you do from success. Because when you, when you succeed, pop the champagne, good job, Eric, good job, Keir. And when you lose, you're like, this is where I think ego can help. It's like, hey, this hurts. And I've just, it's not always been the healthiest, but I've really, I take my failures to heart. If we had a hamstring, it would piss me off for the rest of the day and I would take it home. <laughs> Right. So how do you not fit? I mean, like when you enter a new situation, mm -hmm. how do you succeed with or, or succeed with minimal failure? Like what would the process be if you were to go back to Japan mm -hmm. for the first time or some brand new countries? We drop you in Sweden and yeah. let's just say the Swedish national government's like, here, we want you to be the high performance director or whatever you are. Give me, give me that Corona. <laughs> yeah. Like what are you going to do? So that you make sure, like, what would you do different this time so that your model of reality is the most accurate model? I mean, you probably heard of the Kinefin formula. It looks at the nature of problems, okay? And there's simple, complicated, complex, and chaotic. Simple problem. How do you get this nail into this wood? Hammer it like hell. Optimal solution. Very few moving pieces, very few steps. Simple problem. Complicated problems. How do you get a rocket to land on the moon in 1969? Union mechanics is so predictable, even though it's not, it's not actually a, um, a true model of reality because of relativity. When you, when you operate at the scale of relativity, Newtonian mechanics doesn't actually fit anymore. But it was accurate enough and predictable enough 
that a team of really smart scientists at NASA were able to land a rocket. And there is a, there is an optimal solution. There is a correct answer to that problem. It's just really, really hard to do. In dynamic systems, complex problems, which is sport, everything affects everything in unpredictable ways, in ways that you didn't understand before. And it's constantly changing. If nothing more, just look at the experience of stress in the human body. It's a subjective experience. So even if the factors affecting performance and the inputs to performance were consistent and predictable, which they're not, the result would always be different because of the person's subjective experience of that stress. And then you throw in all of these different factors like physical, tactical, technical, psychological, logistical, the structure of the business, the weather, the refereeing, like all these different factors, you realize that in complex systems, you must constantly be trying to limit the downside because it is impossible to say, right, this is going to be the optimal solution. This is going to work. But what success is impossible to predict. And there's, um, you know, many roads lead to Rome. Failure is fairly consistent in there's a few things that if we get this wrong, we will fail. And they tend to be more similar and less variable. You and I could both name 10 different things like that right now that are the kiss of death to athletic performance. Drugs, alcohol, stress, mismanagement of load, not being a master of your sport, decentralized or, or siloed approach to data and information sharing. All of them are via negative things, which is we know this is going to be a limiting factor on performance and we have to remove it. Right. So it's kind of like do all the stuff that you can to avoid failure right. before seeking success. And so that's why like the agile approach from Mladen. Yeah. Because, trying to avoid failure. Yeah. And then, then you have, let's say, 80% of your efforts put into 80, avoiding. 80, yeah. 20, right. It's, it's a series of bets. And just as more information becomes available, you have to update your bets. So I was foolish enough to think, I've got the recipe. This is, I, no, no. I was foolish enough to think this is going to work. Yep. So really, I should have, you know, somebody asked me the other day, would I change stuff? And I, I said, no, because of the butterfly effect. Had I not experienced that failure, maybe I wouldn't have learned the lesson. But if, if I was to come into a similar situation tomorrow, of course, I would approach it differently. This is really good stuff because now I'm thinking in terms of business. Yeah. You know, where everything is on us now. Yeah. Well, here's, um, one, here's one way that businesses fail. Cost of acquisition exceeds lifetime customer value. Yep. Million roads lead to Rome. But guess what? You need to make one of those numbers smaller than the other. Yeah. <laughs> Not understanding your customers, yep. not understanding their values, what they truly desire, yeah. and trying to build a product without understanding them first is a surefire way to fail. And guess what? You're going to have to test that. Yes. That's the, that's the way it works. So you're updating that model, right? Yes. Yeah. Business is absolutely a, uh, a complex problem. And I think that, you know, there's market conditions. Some things are outside of your control, mm -hmm. but... There's opportunity. So, for instance, coronavirus, the pandemic happened, Airbnb, okay, 
Like they are completely contingent. Their models contingent on people going somewhere else and staying inside of a, a home or apartment or whatever. Mm-hmm. So what do they do? They didn't sulk. They're like, okay, what can we pivot to? Okay, now we're going to create experiences, virtual experiences. Mm -hmm. People can have the Airbnb experience with maybe some celebrity or some person, and they're finding new ways to be profitable. And so, you know, I look at it as, you know, there's a lot of similarities between sports and business, and there's lessons that we can learn from each. And now you and I have both kind of transitioned more into, well, we have transitioned into us generating our own uh, (laughs) economic future. Yeah. So Kier, you know, one of the things that that you and I experienced together was also trying to change the mindset of a place, you know, Mm -hmm. things a certain way, you know, do you think like when you want to change a culture, like what's the best way to change a culture? Simultaneously top down and bottom up. Yep. Culture has not changed until it has changed at the the grassroots level because that is where, you know, in sport, that's where the rubber hits the road. Right. So, you know, I remember talking to my dad. I think I was in my early 20s and he was talking about this like mid-level manager at his company that, you know, he got up in a meeting and was talking about paradigm shifts and blah, blah, blah to like these truck drivers. And they were like, what? <laughs> now in his mind, that guy was changing the culture, but and you know, until it's felt and it changes at the grassroots level, the culture's not changed. So simply having core values isn't enough. You have to figure out a way to embed those core values within the different parts of your ecosystem. Yeah, you gotta be about it. It's like you can talk about it, but it's it's until values are tested, they're verbal preferences. We, you and I have had that conversation multiple times. Yes. <laughs> With that said, the levers of change, the resources, and the political will to change a culture absolutely comes from the top down. Yes. Because when I was 17, 750,000 people marched on London against the Iraq war. And guess what? We went to war. (laughs) Yeah. So it it has to be both. And one of the things that I really believe is that you you remember cool runnings where they try and copy the swiss and they're like we're not copying the swiss we're jamaican right and one of the things that i felt we looking back did a good job with with football was we got our own identity and sometimes positioning yourself against tradition and having your own identity is actually more powerful so everyone was like doing the hype tapes of like, oh, Navy SEAL BS, blah, blah, blah. And we were putting up videos of the, of the guys dancing to uh, Greece and girls just want to have fun. <laughs> because that's our, that was our positioning. We're not pirates. So we're not the Navy. We're the pirates. And right. if, you lo- if you lose to us, shame on you. <laughs> right. And our guys actually, you know, they, they, they loved it. It was part of like their new identity. And it also... I mean, you're a master of social media. It caught people's attention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you, we were actually, you created something that propagated itself online and people were asking questions and wondering what this was. And it really opened yeah. up this whole new group of people that were like, you know, pushing back against the status quo of the hype person on the sideline and what the role of the strength coach should really Dude, be. I, our, our colleagues at other schools in the CAA, they've jokingly called our group 
the uh, CAA SNC Council for Reason. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Scott would, I've had a lot of conversations with Scott and he said, if you, if you look, people would talk to us about culture and he would say, well, actually we do have a culture. It's just not what, not the one you want. You know, we had right. for Friday, we had, you know, Queen Bee Fridays in the gym. We had White Girl Wednesdays in the gym, you know, for the music, like all these different things. We had a culture. Yes. And um, I think what schools make the mistake of is trying to copy the culture of successful organizations rather than capitalizing on their own identity. Mm. And that comes from a point of strength, not a point of insecurity. Yeah. Be, yeah. be different. Yeah, and that, that's not like in the SEC, everybody wants to be Nick Saban. Everybody has the fours they put up. and they Everybody like, wants to be Scott Cochran. Right. Yeah. They want to mimic this and mimic that, but it's not until somebody new comes along. Like Chip Kelly came along and everybody's like, oh, we're going to do what Chip Kelly did. Just don't copy the model. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because when you do, you copy the what? You copy the errors. You copy the errors learn from maybe something that they're doing well yeah. but what they were doing at oregon only works at oregon they're the only ones that have nike yeah <laughs> they can have a million different uniforms they're selling something they're creating their own culture and vibe and all this kind of stuff and then you try to bring that down to south alabama somewhere it's just not going to blend and the same thing goes with corporate cultures too you know you, you have to develop your own identity mm -hmm. uh, of who you are why you're doing things the way you're, why you're doing what you're doing, the way that you're doing it, how you're doing it in a unique way to serve the customer. And here's the thing though, without getting too much into the specifics, that was a problem where we worked because people hire in their own image to an extent. Yeah. Right. You are not a conventional thinker <laughs> and you hired me yeah. and you hired Scott. Yeah. And we recruited Tony, we recruited Alex, we recruited Ray. These yeah. like, we had a mixed bag. Yes. The community and the top level administration of the institution that we worked for were completely at odds with that. Yes. And that was the problem. Yeah. Because you, you, can't, you can't change this way in an organization. You can yeah. only change across and below. That's exactly right. So Kier, now that you've left sport, what are you embarking on? What are you trying to do? What I would like to do is, you know, it might sound deep, but like you, you, re, you reflect on life. You, you, I mean, you're forced to reflect on life when you have children. Mm. And I've always tried to, when I've worked at a place, the lens that I pass everything, everything through was, what would they say about me when I leave? What will my legacy be? And now I'm like, what will they say about me when I'm dead? Mm. <laughs> and it wasn't like melodramatic but it's definitely a thought i had which is if all they can say about me when i'm gone is that my guys were better than the other group's guys at chasing a ball around a field that would be a shame mm -hmm. so what i'm trying to do is to get things in order that i can look after the people close to me and take money off the table i want to build into my lifestyle the kind of freedom where I can work with who I want, how I want. I can say whatever I want and think however I want. And if I'm nice to you, it's because I want to be a nice person 
not because the person writing the check says, hey, take that down, don't say this, don't do that. And what I would like to do is try to leverage any kind of experience or skills or knowledge that I have to impact the greatest number of people that I can and to contribute, if I can, at the societal level. And that was one of the driving things in my decision to leave, which is, do I want to influence 100 athletes and have the system work against me and shoot myself in the foot financially and be told to be grateful for the opportunity? Or do I expose myself to some risk and try and influence hundreds, if not thousands of coaches on my terms and take the ceiling off? And that was what I chose. I love it. I really do. I, it's something I've always reflected on is I don't, for me personally, is I didn't want my legacy. Or I looked at a lot of coaches, I, you know, that their goal was chasing a trophy. And then I saw what happened to their families. And I, yeah. in my mind, I always pictured them being in a hospital by themselves. With dying, a trophy. <laughs> with a trophy in the bed with them and like nobody there to care for them and love on them, you know, and it's like in there. And, and so I, I've, I've even heard like the great Joe Gibbs who coach of the Washington Redskins talk about like how he regrets that people ever found out that he slept in the office. Yeah. So early when on his career, when he was with the Redskins, he would sleep in the office sometimes and that got out and people glorified that. And he yeah. actually was like, that was a terrible decision. I, I never told you this, but one of the worst moments of my career was when my son had just been born and I got up at 5 a.m. I think I'd left work at 7 p.m. And I got home and I was feeding my son at almost 9 p.m. And you called me up with a problem about a team and I picked up the phone. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but with the benefit of hindsight, you wouldn't have made that call and I wouldn't have picked it up. Yeah. But that was, that was a, a crystallizing experience for me. Wow, I have an overwhelming feeling of guilt right now. No, you shouldn't. Yeah. The, the, guilt, the guilt's mine for picking up the phone. Right. <laughs> But that can be that can be a powerful moment. No question. Yeah. I think more people need to have... I think there's a lot of people right now with COVID that are thinking this way. Mm-hmm. I wrote when this kicked off, when we both still worked at the school, I wrote, there's going to be a lot of coaches that realize they don't want to coach anymore. <laughs> and I was one of them. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I sat there. I'm like, I, I'm not missing anything right now. Yeah. I'm watching... What, I, what you miss... I miss being with the folks that I was around. I miss yeah. the team atmosphere. I do miss the connection with the players. Yes. But I don't miss a whole lot of other things. There's there's just so many things that, you know, I, you can get over being on the sidelines. Oh, that's yeah. Just a, that's just a little bit of a high. Yeah. That's the birdie when you're playing golf that convinces you to come back for another round. <laughs> right. That's what a lot of people are addicted to. Yeah. Like you said, the uh, the sense of community – all of the things that you would get from that job, you, you can get close to or recreate in other areas in your life. Right. So you talk about that kind of like mastery. Well, you can go do jujitsu. You talk about, you know, community and, and sense of belonging. You have your church. Other people have stuff like that. You talk about excitement. Well, maybe, but really, like you said, the, the goal is not, the, the higher the peak, the lower the trough. It would just be nice to be still. <laughs> yes. And then, you know, the money, well, that, now that's on you. But guess what? You could earn a lot more money than you previously did. 
And for me, I boiled it down to really it's the ego. What will people say about me if I leave? And what will people say about me if I say, well, I want to work in the NFL. And then I have taken myself off the conveyor belt that was on paper the logical route for me to get there. Mm. Now, I think both of those are false, but really not to be, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll say it in a field where most of the conversations that we have are about so-and-so at X school acting like an absolute moron. Why would I work to earn the respect of people that I do not have respect for myself? True. So TBA, our friend, the boy, Anthony, he sent me a quote the day that I resigned. And he said, the goal of all hierarchies is to live outside of the hierarchy. And that is the greatest threat that you can be to people because the number of messages that I've received in the last month, I I got a hundred DMs the day that I published that I was leaving coaching and I've had more ever since. And people saying, thank you for telling it like it is and saying all these things. And if the price of, for me, telling the truth and calling things out when I see it, is that I don't get the ego fluff of saying that I work for an FCS football team, so be it. Yes, absolutely. So what do you say to encourage all those that are on the fence right now? To to leave? Yeah, on, on the fence to leave, to make a change in their life, in the profession. Ask yourself the, the four things. Does it make your life better financially? Does it enhance the relationships of the people that matter most to you? Does it give you a sense of meaning from the work and does it give you career progression or a step towards what it is you want to achieve? If the answer is yes to all four, stay until you die, get fired. If the answer is three, only leave for four. If the answer is two, actively be looking. And if the answer is one, slap yourself. (laughs) That's a great way to wrap this up here. I just want to let you know that I appreciate you. I appreciate your wisdom. I appreciate what you've done for me personally and what you're doing for this field. And Likewise, I am, it's a two-way I, street. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm excited to see what's going to come. And uh, how can people find you? Uh, if you just go rugbystrengthcoach.com, that's if you're a rugby player, rugby athlete. If you're a strength coach, it would be strengthcoachnetwork.com. And you can search for both of those terms on social media, or you can search for my name, because it turns out there's not a lot of people named Kirwan and Flat. All right. Well, thank you for coming on The Blueprint today. It was awesome to have you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, sign up for my high-performance newsletter at www.ericcorum.com. And if you want to stay current on everything high-performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum, Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.